0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 38 in our series for 2015, and today's date is Friday the 23rd of October. Uh, And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week?
1: Well, this week we're going to have a chat with Florian Dutteau, who's the head of a big data management platform, Dataku Data Science Studio, and he's going to be talking to us all about big data analysis.
0: He's based in Paris, and uh, we spoke to him by Skype.
2: Okay, well, let's have a chat with Monsieur Deteau. Florian,
1: what are the issues regarding data flows?
2: Well, business issues regarding data flows is, well, the first business issue is that in lots of companies today, you don't really have data flows when it's about doing uh, analytics, advanced analytics. It's more like uh, companies and people within companies build their own tools and did their own analytics, each on their own environment and possibly desktop, laptop, meaning everybody gets its own things on data. But it's very hard to collaborate and have uh, data flows which are shared within the company where different people can actually work on the same data flow and it's fairly important today to do so because well when you are working on data today data is fairly complex, so that not a single person within a company does have the complete, their complete answer to the problem, So there is a need for collaboration, which is actually very huge and very important to get things done efficiently. I
1: suppose there'd be issues like uh, fraud, logistics, and predictive maintenance, wouldn't there?
2: Yeah. The, the, the use case for data flows in, in companies today are uh, fraud detection, Uh, churn prevention or uh, forecast demand in order to optimize their uh, logistic uh, processes. And uh, interesting use cases are uh, also uh, related to uh, industrial companies that are moving to digital. Uh, One example that comes to my mind uh, would be this company called Parkion, which is actually uh, powering uh, park meters. Uh, for uh, well around uh, 500,000 park meters around the planet. Basically, they are building those park meters. So it's a physical brick and mortar company originally. And so they are switching to uh, a software kind of uh, go-to-market by developing uh, applications that use uh, park meter data to help uh, people find a parking slot. And so in order to do so, they have to build data flows that capture the data from the park meter's log, meaning tickets and so on, capture data from other partners in order to know things about traffic and density of population and so on, in order to empower this uh, app, which is available on the App Store, that automatically forecasts where there should be a parking slot available for people.
0: Florian, I get the impression that analyzing big data is beyond most single companies. So does your um, data science studio, does that offer, uh, do you have the statisticians and the experts to deal with um, this volume of data and and produce something that a business a businessman a real business mind would be able to understand
2: yeah yes we we do we do offer uh, consulting services and we have a data scientists within the company to help uh, people work on their data but what we see more and more are, is uh, actually a company that build their own capabilities by hiring new people or by training their own employees in order to Manage this uh, volume of big data. And at the end, it's a, it's a matter of uh, whether, well, it's a matter of who uh, has and the competitive advantage and create value on the long term. Uh, companies today, lots of companies today believe that data is a core asset. And so creating value on top of this data is a key competitive advantage. So even if you're not, a digital company or a software company or whatever tech company, you might just want to have the right people within your company so that you control this competitive advantage.
1: Even if you're not a tech company, even if you're not involved in the uh, digital space at all. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: How, how do you go, how would somebody like that go about detecting fraud? Is it a matter of uh, matching patterns of behavior in, in the data? Or, you know, how do you get hold of... Somebody trying to burrow in and defraud you or steal ad- steal identities.
2: So there, there is a, no one one silver bullet that, uh, well, that catches it all. Obviously, unless well, if it was the case, uh, so the problem would be solved for uh, for decades now. But uh, basically, it's uh, it's all about using historical data, so past frauds mainly and also detecting patterns of things which are uncommon within the data in order to to in order to 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 detect the fraud one um typical things that you that you would look for would be i don't know uh, people that are uh, Uh, getting delivered uh, items for the first time at a new address, where the type of item and the district doesn't really match. Like, it's uh, very odd to have this kind of item dispatched for this address or things like that. And in order to, to understand that this is odd, you basically train the machine, the computer, to detect this. And he would detect this by Learning what is odd or not odd based on past transaction basically
1: but isn't it the case now that cyber criminals uh, uh, conducting fraud are now much more sophisticated so they're less likely to make those sorts of mistakes
2: that's 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 well that's fairly true uh, Advanced cyber criminals are aware of uh, this and so that's the case but one thing is that cyber criminality is uh, is uh, actually fairly it's not the matter of one or two uh, cyber criminals. You've got lots of cyber criminals and lots of, lots of cyber criminals don't actually uh, have uh, advanced tactics. It's uh, just about uh, getting, uh, getting a card number from one lo- from uh, one way or another and uh, getting things delivered at uh, at an address. Obviously, uh, it's a game. It's a competition between cyber between cyber criminality and fraud detection that is uh, everlasting. At the end,
0: so you're looking for patterns in in a vast ocean of data. So, do you does the human sort of specify? I want you know. I'm looking at that particular address, or I'm looking at that particular item and then the machine seeks out matches in the database?
2: Yeah, the, the, there, is a, there is some interactivity between the human and the machine and the way it works basically is that um, the machine does need the ints and the appropriate data. Um, let me take an example. In order to find uh, whether an address is odd or not, it could be very interesting to know the number of people actually living at that address. Meaning, uh, if it, uh, if uh, if there is only one people working at that address, but it's within a city, that's actually quite odd. So it might be a fraudulent address, one way or another. I don't know. And so, in order to get, you know, you basically need a human today, need to actually specify to the machine and tell him to compute one way or another, or capture or get the number of people living at a, at an address in order to feed that to the algorithm that learns something about the address. So the machine automatically learns from possibly millions, billions of transactions, but basically you have to specify to the machine what are the variables to look at at some point.
0: Then the database would need to collect data from a, a large number, would need to collect data from other records than the company say your client company's own records would it not
2: yes it, it would be data yeah yeah and generally speaking the ability to collect data from different data sources and what's even more important to cleanse this data at scale meaning to to make it uh, straightforward usable without error is a key blocking factors it's is a key blocking factor for people that are uh, that are uh, building uh, data flows and, uh, applic- and applications such as fraud detection or uh, chain prevention.
0: So do you get into areas other than sort of crim- criminal uh, you know frauds and things like that could a client come to you and say he wants to build a, pa- a- a marketing pattern, you know, which product is selling better in which sort of which sort of country or which sort of city? Would that be also part of what you do?
2: Yes, that is also part of uh, of what we do. Uh, we actually uh, have customers that are doing that with our um, with, with our product. And so, well, typical use case use case here. A typical use case would be uh, the ability to forecast the demand of a product uh for uh, on a a given region and at a given time uh, either for marketing purposes or uh, as we talked before for logistic purposes in order to optimize your logistic process basically and just be able to deliver uh, things on time
0: and of course it would tell you what production level you'd have to how many items of of a certain kind to produce it could predict that i guess
2: yes that's that's yeah that's actually an another use case
1: so attack it attack it these these systems are becoming much more complex Uh Oh, oh, as increasingly complex as we go along. Is that right?
2: Yes, the, 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 the systems become more complex and sophisticated as we go along, just because in order to get competitive advantages, uh, companies take into account more and more data and more and more data sources in order to, to make those uh, forecasts. They are getting more complex.
1: Well, Florian, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. Well, there you go. Uh, interesting company, and uh, like a lot of uh, companies in that end, at uh, a high end of technology.
1: And now we're going to have a chat with economist Saul Eslake, and he's going to be talking to us all about the housing market and are we nearing the end of a housing boom? Somewhere it's got to end somewhere,
0: but everybody, there's a lot of doubt about it. Saul's got a pretty clear view, though.
1: Saul Eslake, there are reports that house prices, are, well, the brakes the are on Australian house prices, and they're going to ease back to their slowest pace in years, and that's in the wake of Westpac last week becoming the first of the big four to raise interest rates independent. The Reserve Bank of Australia. Australia what's your assessment of it
3: I think it is possible that the rate of increase in house prices especially in Sydney has begun to slow and I think that would be a good thing but I'd put it down less to Westpac's decision earlier this month to raise its interest rates independently of any Reserve Bank moves and more to the measures that APRA has been instituting since late last year, which have been designed to slow the rate of lending to investors in the property market and to prompt the banks into exercising higher or more demanding lending standards. Much of the increase in property prices, especially in Sydney and Melbourne, since the Reserve Bank began cutting rates in in November 2011, has been driven by investors rather than owner-occupiers. Indeed, for most of the last four years, investors have accounted for a larger share of lending to property purchases than owner-occupiers have done, and that's a dramatic change from the way in which the Australian housing market has traditionally worked.
1: So it's been very much investment-driven. Yes, it has.
3: And as the Reserve Bank noted in the Financial Stability Report, which it released in October investors introduce additional risks into the housing market, partly because they are prone to what's sometimes called herding behaviour by economists. That is, they're more likely to want to buy for fear of missing out on prospective gains, partly because they are also more likely to exit the market than owner-occupiers are, thus putting downward pressure on prices when circumstances have changed. And they may be also more prone to driving cycles of overbuilding, such as we've seen in other markets in the past 15 years. The overall conclusion being that a market which is dominated by investors has a tendency to be more volatile than a market in which owner-occupiers are the predominant driving force. This is largely why APRA has been stepping up its oversight of the lending practices of banks where investors are concerned. And as the Reserve Bank noted in its financial stability review, they discovered in the course of that that banks' lending standards had been slipping to below what you might have expected in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And I think that it's this tightening up combined with the earlier increases in interest rates charged to investors earlier this year that have been the major factors behind the slowing in investor demand for housing of late which is in turn apparently leading to some cooling in house price movements particularly in Sydney where they've been strongest over the last few years
1: do you do you expect uh, do you expect there'll be uh, any Further uh, banks making moves?
3: It's possible because all of the banks have been subject to similar pressures from the regulators to hold more capital against their mortgage portfolios and to tighten up on lending standards. Ultimately, if banks do or are forced to hold more capital, then that has a cost. And it's a commercial decision by the banks as to how they share those higher costs of capital between their customers, both their lending and their depositing customers, and their shareholders. Uh, Westpac's made its decision. The other banks, at the time we're recording this, are yet to make those decisions. It's also important to remember, of course, that if the majority of lenders do decide to pass on the costs of increased capital holdings to their borrowers in the form of higher mortgage rates, then the Reserve Bank may well look to offset that by lowering its cash rate so that the rates that borrowers are actually paying on their loans are unchanged, but the Reserve Bank isn't going to act in response to a move by just one of the major banks, which is all we've seen thus far.
1: Uh, the government is expected today, as we're recording this, uh, to make a response to the Murray report, uh, uh, which. Where do you think they'll go?
3: I suspect the government will accept the Murray Inquiry's recommendations that Australian banks be required to hold more capital. Murray specifically said that Australian banks should be in the top quartile internationally of capital adequacy requirements, and that would mean on average that banks would need to hold perhaps two or three percentage points more of the value of their assets in the form of capital. There are a range of other recommendations regarding provisions to reduce the possible burden on taxpayers in the event of a bank failure and a whole raft of recommendations regarding superannuation, including, I think importantly, a recommendation that self-managed super funds not be allowed to borrow for the purpose of investment in housing. And that is an area that's grown quite rapidly, albeit from a very low base. The Reserve Bank was keen to see that reined in and it will be interesting to see whether the government acts on those and other recommendations of the Murray Inquiry.
1: Uh, the self-managed super funds uh, is quite a force in itself, aren't they?
3: Well, they're small but rapidly growing one. Self-managed super funds, to the extent that they do invest in property, have typically been more exposed to commercial property than residential property. And it was only when, a few years ago, the regulations were changed to allow self-managed super funds to borrow on a strictly non-recourse basis, that is, without the lenders having access to self-managed super funds assets in other assets in the event of a default it's only when those regulations changed that this area began to of housing investment began to increase quite rapidly i was surprised by that change in regulation when it occurred you might have thought that the idea of allowing more non-recourse lending for investment in housing would have got a bad name because of the role it played in precipitating the us housing financial crisis a us uh, housing crisis of 2007-2009 and In addition, the last thing, in my view, Australia really needs is more investment that serves solely to push up the price of the housing we already have. As most of the lending for housing that the major banks have done in recent years has done, over 90% of all lending by Australian lenders for the purchase of housing to investors is for the purchase of established housing rather than for the purchase of new housing that adds to the housing stock. and. Uh, effectively, all that this borrowing binge has really done has been further to inflate Australian house prices to the detriment of would-be owner-occupiers. One of the other interesting things we're beginning to see in recent months as investor demand for housing has slowed in response to increases in interest rates and regulatory measures is that owner-occupiers may be returning to the housing market. And I would think that's, on balance, a good thing as long as they don't overcommit themselves.
1: The, uh, the latest report... There was a report yesterday by uh, SQM, uh, their housing... uh boom and bust report uh, was forecasting that uh, capital city home prices would rise between three and eight percent next calendar year, which is far lower than the healthier clip of 9.8 percent in the year to June 2015. Uh, Where do you see house prices heading?
3: Well, the first point I'd make is that I don't think that almost 10 percent rise in property prices on average over the past year has been healthy. Uh, That's not a view that everyone will agree with, but in my view, at least, the sharp rises in property prices, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, much less so in other parts of the country over the last three or four years, have not done much economic good and arguably have done social harm. I say not done much economic good because rising house prices haven't spilled over into other forms of economic activity nearly as much as they have done in the past. And that's because I think Australians are understandably reluctant to borrow more in order to fund additional spending as they were in the early 2000s, given how much debt they now have. It's worth remembering that Australian household debt as a proportion of income is now just about the highest in the world. And while Australian households can pretty easily service that debt at current interest rates, interest rates are almost certainly won't remain at present levels forever and at some point they'll rise and when they do Australian households may be more vulnerable than they have been in the past. The second thing that I said was that rising, rapidly rising house prices were arguably doing social harm. I say that because of the way in which gains in housing wealth are exacerbating inequalities in the distribution of wealth between those who own housing and those who don't and because of the way in which it's increasingly pricing would-be owner-occupiers, especially those aged under 40, from the same goals of owning their own home that previous generations of young adults have had in the past. And I, I think it's worth noting here that Australia's home ownership rate is now lower than at any time since the 1950s, and that over the last 20 years in particular, despite Low interest rates and billions of dollars being spent by federal and state governments in ostensibly in the name of promoting home ownership, the home ownership rate among people aged forty five and under has dropped by an average of nearly ten percentage points
1: so you would expect though if house prices do house price growth does ease back. Uh- more of these people come back into the market, surely.
3: I, th- I think that's possible, provided, of course, we don't have a major price decline as occurred in, for example, the US island and Spain sure. in the second half of the previous decade. There have been some forecasts of house prices declining over the next 12 months. They're not unusual. Someone has forecast price declines in Australian housing markets almost every year for the past decade, and that doesn't mean that we're going to see those occurring in the next 12 months. For house prices to fall significantly across the board, as distinct from in particular geographies, there need I think, to be two conditions satisfied. One, there has to be a large number of forced sellers, that is, people who have to sell their houses because they can't meet the financial obligations associated with continuing to own them. And second, there needs to be those sales going into an oversupplied market, that is, where the supply of housing exceeds the underlying demand for it. Now, at the moment, there are unlikely to be Any significant numbers of forced sellers because interest rates are very low and because most owner-occupiers, at least, have built up a substantial buffer or margin against future interest rate increases by paying off their principal more quickly than they have to as interest rates have come down. And we don't, at least nationally, have an oversupply of housing yet. Indeed, I'd argue that because of underbuilding over the last 15 or so years, we still have quite a considerable backlog of unmet demand for housing nationally. However, and and so I don't think there's any great prospect of a reduction in house prices or fall in house prices at any time in the next six to 12 months. Looking out further than that, however, over a two to three year horizon, it is possible that we could see weakness in house prices. First, because interest rates could well be going up in two or three years' time. And second, because given trends that are now unfolding, both in housing demand and housing supply, the balance between the two of them could shift quite significantly over the next two or three years. Population growth is now slowing. And that means that the rate of growth of underlying demand for housing will be slowing. And we're also now seeing completions running at an of 200000 per annum. And if we have two or three years of that, then that is likely to make substantial inroads into the present shortage of housing. So that two or three years down the track, if those trends continue and interest rates are beginning to rise, then the possibility of Australian house prices declining can't be
1: dismissed. That'll be fascinating to watch uh, <laughs> two or three years from now. So Les, like, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. So what do you think, Leon? I'd say that um, prices are going to keep increasing, but uh, it will be more modest increases rather than some of the spectacular increases that we've seen and and unhealthy increases that we've seen.
0: Yeah, unhealthy. But as as Saul says, uh, Sydney seemed to be coming off the boil, though prices aren't collapsing and Melbourne's still going up a bit.
1: So now, the news. Gary, we got news out of China and uh, they defied the doomsayers. Their economy expanded faster than economists had forecast in the third quarter and what happened was a services sector propped up the world's second largest economy suggesting that the monetary and fiscal stimulus is keeping Premier Li Cushing's 2015 7% growth target within reach. Now, GDP rose 6.9% in the three months through to September from a year before. That beat economists' estimates of 6.8%. Now, that said it was the slowest still the slowest quarterly expansion since the first three months of 2009 so it's the slowest expansion in six years and the economic resilience comes as a stronger services sector and robust consumption helps offset weakness in manufacturing and exports now the government has cut interest rates five times since November. It's boosted infrastructure in recent months to keep growth from sliding too far below this year's targets for about 7%. And you'd say, based on that figure, that 7%
0: could be within reach. It could be, but <clears throat> there are t- I think are two things. One is we don't totally trust the numbers coming out of the Chinese government. Uh, the other thing is if exports and manufacturing are declining a bit, then they are going to have problems down
1: in the lower part. I path. think so. So anyway, let's just watch that space the world will be watching it very closely now to australia and the big news here was that the turnbull government has opened the way to the greatest overhaul of australia's financial system in nearly twenty years by approving almost all of the recommendations set out in the financial systems inquiry by former commonwealth bank chief david murray now the government agreed to all but one of the report's 44 recommendations, it rejected the proposals to stop direct borrowing by superannuation funds. Now, the changes are gonna include a crackdown on banks. They're gonna tighten up property investment by self-managed superannuation funds. Uh, There's tighter training restrictions for financial advisors and it places them on a professional footing for the first time. The government's also bringing in laws next year banning excessive card surcharges. It will introduce measures to better protect consumers using electronic payment systems. And to boost the resilience of banks, there'll be measures to ensure the banking system is more stable by holding more capital. Now, risk weights, leverage, loss absorbency and regulations, crisis management powers will also be addressed. So by the end of next year, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authorities will have taken steps to ensure the banks have strong capital ratios and beyond 2016, it will ensure the banks have appropriate total loss absorbing capacity and leverage ratios in place. Now, financial advisors from now on are going to be required to hold a degree, pass an exam, undertake continuous professional development, subscribe to a code of ethics and undertake a professional year. But of a sweep that's right. The government also wants to restrict use of the term financial advisor and financial planning to those listed on a register. And it's also going to ban individuals from managing financial firms. It's also committed itself to other recommendations including a regulatory framework to facilitate crowdsource equity funding through the 2015-16 budget. It's going to create a national digital identity strategy, so big brother is coming. And it's going to up- if he's not here already. That's right. And it's going to update a cyber security strategy. Now the point is that last time Australia's financial system was so completely overhauled was with the Wallace Review in 1997. I think this is quite a spectacular piece of move.
0: It is indeed, yeah, and I think Malcolm's going to get a lot of it through simply because he's got the confidence of the people. That's right,
1: and it's well overdue. Well overdue. Now, the Westpac Melbourne Institute Leading Index, which indicates the likely pace of economic activity three to nine months in the future, increased from negative 1.14% to negative 0.35 in September. Growth in the index has now been below trend for the last five months. Also, consumer confidence slipped 2% on the back of Westpac, raising interest rates and concerns about the property market. And the slippage in the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index follows a 5.1% bounce the week before. Now, ANZ's co-head of economics, Felicity Emick, reckons a fall in consumer confidence is probably driven by the deteriorating sentiment about the outlook for the housing market.
0: Construction, the whole the whole scene is not too healthy at the moment is it?
1: Now the other big piece of news is that after weeks of argy-bargy, Labor has given the nod to the China Free Trade Agreement. Now Labor's caucus approved the deal which includes a number of small changes to regulations following a meeting between the Trade Minister Andrew Robb and Labor Senator Penny Wong and that means the deal will come into force before the end of a year and in the end Labor consu- secured concessions around Labor market testing and requirements for Chinese workers to have skills to work safely on Australian construction sites and another concession involves foreign workers wages benchmarked against what local workers are paid if they're part of an enterprise agreement rather than the award rate which tends to be lower. But that's a big piece of news, Gary.
0: It is a very big piece of news but of course the uh, it'll be uh, how the pudding tastes when we see it on the table.
1: That's right. So let's take a look at that. Now Treasury is reportedly looking at a swag of big changes for the government's tax reform package. That includes broadening or introducing land taxes payroll tax exemptions, adjusting stamp duties and that means any package is going to go beyond any proposal to increase the GST from 10 to 15% and the proposed changes are expected to be taken to the next meeting of state and federal treasurers in
0: February beginning to look as though the GST increase will be 12 and a half.
1: Now Australian super funds are reeling from market volatility and have slipped into negative territory with the medium balanced option down 1.7% for the first quarter of 2015-16 and that's the fifth time a negative quarter has been recorded for the past five years and that follows on from a 1% in the month of September and 2.9% fall in August. And that was the largest monthly fall since the GFC. Now, however, that is reflecting what's been happening in markets around the world. The Australian investment market continues to decline. The ASX 200 accumulation index is down 3% in September and 6.6% for the quarter. The biggest fall, however, was in international fair of shares. They fell 3.7% in September, 8.3% for the quarter. However, the fall in the Australian dollar against the greenback shielded some of the international share losses and Australian list of properties slipped by modest 0.3% to finish up 1.1% for September. So not looking good for super. A
0: bit rough, yes.
1: Now the brakes are on the Australian property prices. This follows on from our conversation with Saul Eslake. The latest annual housing boom and bust report by SQM Research forecasts property prices easing back to their slowest pace in four years. And according to SQM, average capital city dwelling prices are going to rise between 3 and 8% next calendar year. Now, that's well down on the healthy clip of 9.8% or nearly 10% the year to June twenty fifteen. And in Sydney, where house prices exploded and drove much of a growth around the country, property prices will rise between four and nine percent into twenty sixteen. That's well down on the nineteen percent growth in the year to June twenty fifteen. Indeed, it reckons Melbourne is set to overtake Sydney as Australia's property engine, with property price growth in Melbourne of between eight and thirteen percent. Now this slowdown in price has been attributed to the limits on investor lending set by the banking regulator APRA and it's a move consolidated by banks like Westpac, which last week stepped out as the first of the big four to raise interest rates independent of the RBA, and there's expectations other banks will follow.
0: Yeah, it would be likely, yeah, particularly if there's a bit of a government pressure going to come on them.
1: At the same time, minutes, however, of the RBA October board meeting suggest the RBA is in no hurry to cut interest rates because it's concerned about an overheated property market. And that said, the ANZ, however, is still tipping the RBA will cut interest rates by 50 basis points from next February. Now, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, with the Future Fund, added another $610 million to $117.83 billion as of September 13. Now, that's a modest growth rate of 0.5%, but it shows the fund is holding up in the face of falling stock markets around the world. Because the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 8% in the September quarter, Tokyo's Nikkei plunged more than 14%, the Shanghai Composite nosedive a massive 25%, and the Australian market fell 13%. And to moderate risk, what the fund's done is it's moved some of its money into hedge funds in the September quarter. Now, hedge funds work off anomalies in markets to generate returns regardless of where the market goes up and down.
0: And volatility's been the name of the game in share markets around the world. And if you Pick, pick your time where you can make money.
1: Now, the Parliamentary Budget Office has warned that Australians need to ask themselves some really hard questions about government spending if they want the budget to move back into surplus. And with the Turnbull government preparing its mid-year budget updating in eight weeks' time, Parliamentary Budget Office head, Chris Bowen, told a Senate Committee hearing this week that the public had to consider trade-offs. You see, on one hand, it was demanding lower taxes, and on the other hand, there was ever-increasing expectations about government services in the face of reduced terms of trade, lower growth and falling per capita income. And slower economic growth, he said, means the government is going to have less money for services. So people are going to have to make some hard decisions.
0: Indeed they are. And of course the fight's on already uh, between uh, the ALP and the government over um, family welfare.
1: That's right. That's right. So let's take a look. And finally, a really interesting piece of news is that Bruce Gordon's Wynn Corporation has swooped on the Nine network. It's acquired a 13% stake in Nine. From US hedge fund Apollo Global. Now, the deal is going to be done through Gordon's private investment vehicle, Burketu, and in an announcement to the market, Nine said the transaction was expected to be completed on 9th of November. Now, this deal is important because Bruce Gordon already has a major stake, 14.9%, in the rival network 10, and it comes at a time when there's discussion about media ownership laws, and that's back on the agenda. Now, regional broadcasters in Fairfax have been lobbying the government to scrap the Ridge Rule, which stops TV operators from broadcasting more than 75% of the population, and the two out of three rule preventing media companies from owning a tv station radio network and newspaper in the same market so it's going to be interesting to watch
0: it's going to be fascinating and of course it comes at a time when free-to-air tv is under huge threat from internet uh, entertainment services
1: that's right from uh, Netflix
0: Netflix and you name it they're doing it even iView
1: so anyway that's it for this week Gary
0: very good and uh, what do we got on for next week
1: well next week we've got a terrific interview with uh, Nigel Gerard. he's the uh, CEO of packaging company Aurora and they have won a BRW most innovative company awards yeah. and they're really interesting to talk to
0: Yep, indeed. They're a spin-off, aren't they? They're a spin-off
1: from Amcor. Amcor. Yeah, very interesting company, really sharp. And that's it for this week. In the meantime, you can be in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.